0: subcontinent, won't you welcome from Calumet City, Illinois, the show band of Julia Chick and Elwood Blues, the Blues Brother. Hey everybody, welcome back to Stuff You Don't Need to Know. This is Jay, and I want to wish everybody out there a happy Father's Day. And with it being Father's Day, uh, it kind of reminds me of something that my dad did for me mm, about 40 years ago. Being the awesome dad that he is, he took me to one of my first R-rated films ever that came out 40 years ago this month. Of course, I'm talking about The Blues Brothers. Uh, I had no idea what I was in for when I went to see this film. And all these years later, I mean, I must have seen this film at least 100 times. Uh, I have the soundtrack, I actually still have the CD. I think I actually even still have the cassette somewhere. And, uh, you know, on my Spotify and everything like that, uh, you know, I, I I have the album downloaded. I mean, this film, this movie was just such an incredible, such an iconic film. And I think that, you know, it was an amazing film when it came out 40 years ago. And I think to this day, it still really holds up. I mean, my daughter has seen it. She absolutely, I mean, she saw it, I think, maybe about a year or two ago. So, you know, she was in her late teens when she saw it. And she really, really enjoyed it. I mean, like I said, I I think it still holds up today, which for a movie that came out in 1980... That's kind of tough to do. Uh, it, It wasn't dated in the least at all. So, I mean, I'm going to assume that just about everybody who's listening to this has watched the Blues Brothers film. But if you haven't, first of all, stop the podcast right now. Watch it then come back and listen to the podcast Uh, please continue to listen to the podcast but um just really really quick i mean it's the story of two brothers jake and elwood blues uh you know we learned that uh, they were raised in an orphanage they learned about blues music from uh, curtis who was the janitor uh, at this orphanage and uh, when the film opens up we see that jake is being released from joliet prison uh just outside of chicago illinois Uh, that's where they are from jake and elwood they are from chicago and uh you know they decide to visit the nun that uh, ran their orphanage to find out that because of um, a tax assessment and whatnot uh you know the orphanage owes a certain amount of money a uh, 10 or twenty i can't remember the figure right about now and um if it's not paid by the end of the week or the end of the month or whatever it is the orphanage is going to close and you know jake gets an epiphany shortly thereafter and realizes you know what his purpose is and what his mission is is they're going to put the band back together and they're going to save the orphanage and hilarity ensues so like i said i'm not really going to go over the plot or anything like that i figure you know with it being 40 years since the film came out let's talk a little trivia about this film so this was the first film that uh dan Aykroyd wrote uh he was you know They, you know, John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, had created the Blues Brothers for Saturday Night Live. Uh, And In fact, before this film came out, you know, I I mean, back then, 78, 79, I mean, I was, I barely knew what Saturday Night Live was. But uh, on Saturday Night Live, the Blues Brothers were, it was a pretty popular act. And in fact, before this film came out, they had released an album called A Briefcase Full of Blues. Uh, I believe it went platinum. And they would actually tour around and perform. And, you know, it really, it wasn't so much the film that really put the Blues Brothers over the top. I mean, they were already, you know, they were popular characters already. I mean, I remember watching um, old Saturday Night Live and seeing the Blues Brothers there and just having seen the movie first and then to see them. I mean, they really only were just a musical act on the show. They didn't do any skits or anything like that. But still, I mean, I think it was it was absolutely fantastic. Um, it, was, it was a great I don't want to say gimmick. They were a great duo, and, you know, it just really, really worked out. So, like I said, Dan Aykroyd was tasked with writing this film. He had never written a script before in his life. He had never even read a script before in his life. He submitted a 324-page script just because he, quite honestly, didn't know how to write a film at all. The director for this movie was uh, John Landis, fame, fame director. And uh, he was able to take that and and edit it down within like two or three weeks. He edited it down to, um, you know, the script that eventually produced the movie that you see now. All that being said, though, the film was still a pretty long film when it was first shot that uh, the studios asked Jonathan Landis to go back and edit it out about a good I think 25 to 30 minutes of the film but still you know wherever they made those cuts it doesn't really affect the story at all I mean it's still an amazing story I think one of the things that this film is really most famous for is a lot of the cameos especially the musical cameos uh you know the legendary Aretha Franklin the legendary Ray Charles uh another legendary musician well there's two more legendary musicians that actually appear in it Fame blues guitarist uh, John Lee Hooker appears in it. Uh, you know, if you're not quite sure, I mean, if you watch the end credits, um, they pretty much tell you all the all the people that starred in the film, even people that had very very small cameos. John Lee Hooker appears in the scene when Jake and Elwood actually go to Ray's music shop where Ray Charles is. He's a street musician and he's performing there, just you know, strumming away on the guitar and and singing. Uh, It's a very, very brief scene, but John Lee Hooker is probably, like, he is a legendary or was a legendary blues guitarist, and it's absolutely amazing that they had him in the film. But another musical icon uh, that appears early on in this film is, of course, James Brown. James Brown plays a gospel preacher, and uh, it's his sermon and song that he sings that really inspires Jake to put the band back together and save the orphanage. Interesting thing. Throughout this entire film, all the musical performances, uh, especially even, you know, with Ray Charles, with Aretha Franklin, with uh, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, the Belushi brothers. Um, You also had uh, Cab Calloway, who played Curtis, who was a famed, um, he was like a jazz musician from the 30s and 40s. Um, He sings the, you know, he's the one, they they performed the, the number, Minnie the Moocher, which was probably his greatest hit ever. and. All these famed musicians, of course, it's a movie. They had a lip sync, except for James Brown. Godfather of Soul said, I'm not doing it. you know. And he actually, when you watch that scene of him in the church uh, as this preacher and, and delivering his gospel and singing... That is him. He is not lip syncing at all. Some other famous faces that you might recognize in this film, uh, playing a minor part, but she's still very, very noticeable, is a very young Carrie Fisher, fresh off of, you know, Star Wars and, you know, The Empire Strikes Back, which came out the same time as the Blues Brothers. In fact, the Blues Brothers finished number two in the box office uh, to The Empire Strikes Back when they came out. And for that year, for 1980, it was, I don't know if it was in the top five. It was definitely in the top 10, you know, grossing films for 1980. But we see a very young Carrie Fisher uh, in this. Uh, she plays uh, a woman that was sort of left at the altar by Jake, John Belushi's character. And she's coming back basically to kill him because I believe she is the daughter of the head of the Armenian mafia. <laughs> um and you know, she was totally humiliated and heartbroken by Jake, so she's basically coming back to kill him. Interesting little tidbit on this, uh, she was actually dating Dan Aykroyd at the time, and the story goes that during some downtime, maybe during lunch or whatever, she actually began to choke on a Brussels sprout, and Dan Aykroyd got up, performed the heimlich maneuver, and then decided, hey, why not? He proposed to her right there on the spot. Uh, I don't think they eventually got, ma- I don't think they got married. Uh, I think shortly after this, their relationship fell apart, but that was pretty interesting. There is another Star Wars actor character in, uh, the Blues Brothers. Early on in the film, when we see John Belushi, uh, getting, or Jake, I should say, getting out of Joliet prison, uh, he has to go to the front to sort of like, uh, a quartermaster or somebody, I guess, uh when the inmates come in, all their property is taken from them and, you know, bagged and tagged, basically, and he's coming to claim it and the man uh, behind the gate that's doing that is legendary puppeteer Frank Oz, who would do the puppetry and the voice for Yoda in Empire Strikes Back. Another little bit, you know, another sort of like Star Wars or Lucasfilm tie-in is, is at the end when Jake and Elwood would uh, eventually make it to, to the Cook <laughs> the Cook Clowney tax assessor's office to pay off the taxes on the orphanage. Uh, the guy that takes the payment from them? Steven Spielberg. Interesting thing is is a year earlier, Steven Spielberg had directed a film called 1941, uh, which was a comedy about World War II starring both Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. John Belushi was really more of the headliner in that film. And the movie bombed It flopped. And because of that, there was actually some reluctance. Um, for the studios to actually go through with the Blues Brothers because they had figured that maybe the Sean Belushi guy was just a flash in the pan and, you know, he really wasn't all he was cracked up to be. Thankfully, the studios, you know, pushed ahead and we did get the Blues Brothers and... Thank God for that. Another thing that the Blues Brothers is really, really famous for is some of the action that took place in this film, Uh, more specifically the car chases. Uh, There's two really big car chases in this film. The first one, of course, as you remember, is Jake and Elwood driving through a mall. Guess what? They actually drove through a mall that was just outside of Chicago, Illinois. Now, granted, this mall had been closed, uh, and shuttered up and everything. And for the most part, it was pretty much stripped clean inside the, um, the production staff, I guess, went in and pretty much, you know, took the skeleton of this mall and really kind of rebuilt it and, uh, you know, put some stores in there. um, haircuts and disco pants, I think was one of them, (laughs) um. And yeah, that's there's well, they didn't have CGI back then, and it wasn't a back lot. They actually drove through the mall. The big chase scene at the end is probably famous because it had set the Guinness Book of World Records for uh, most cars destroyed uh, in in a film. Oh God, I mean, well over. I don't actually have the exact number in front of me, but it was basically um, for the longest time. It's at the Guinness Book of World Records for the most cars destroyed in a, in a for stunts in a movie. Well over 100 cars. Um, the film that actually went on to break that record, Blues Brothers 2000. But don't worry, that record was then broken later on in The Matrix Reloaded uh, with that iconic chasing down the highway and, and, and other scenes with them destroying cars there. So. It's just pretty amazing because I remember as a kid watching that going, oh, my God, how many cars are they wrecking? It's it's just it was, it was unbelievable from um, the state trooper cruiser going straight into the side of a truck, which led to the iconic line of John Candy getting on the radio going, uh, this is car. What car is this? 51. Car 51. <laughs> We're in a truck. Um it, it, it's just absolutely amazing that you know this. This was a this was a time again when there was no CGI clearly you know this film was shot you know in and around chicago so this wasn't a back lot so all these chase scenes you know down the highways and going into chicago and through chicago and i have family members that do live out there and i have gone in chicago And let me tell you something i think you know or i should say i thought my daughter goes to school in boston and i always thought driving wise it's a bit of a crazy town the way the roads are laid out the twists and turns and whatnot try navigating around chicago um they have elevated streets there so you'll be on a street uh like they talk about lower wacker drive that's because there's an upper wacker drive right above it it's (laughs) to say it's a crazy place to drive is, is is really really an understatement so the fact that they were able to close down city blocks and really you know do these stunts is absolutely amazing speaking of that and seeing that big chase uh, you know eventually they do make it into Chicago they do make it to you know the federal building to go to pay the taxes and that's when we see the police the state troopers the National Guard come in that scene alone cost back in 1980 close to four million dollars to, to film uh, you know with extras playing the troops and uh, the helicopter flying in and whatnot. So, you know, the interesting thing is, is when this movie was made, it was originally given a budget of about $12 million. And I think at some point they told that to John Landis and he kind of turned to the studio and was like, uh, yeah, we've gone well over that. They actually doubled that. They, they spent close to $24 million, but it's okay because worldwide it made close to $200 million, I believe. That's back in 1980. So that's absolutely amazing because this film was... Not just a success here in the United States, it was pretty much a success worldwide, which is a good thing considering how far they went over budget. Uh, You know, Speaking of helicopters, early on, um, like I said in the beginning, we see Jake getting out of prison. And the way the film kind of opens up, it's like a helicopter shot, almost like a helicopter shot coming in into Chicago, going over the prison. Here's the thing. They filmed that scene inside the prison, which was fine. Uh, Obviously, they got permission to do it and this and that. One small problem, they didn't tell the guards, they didn't tell the guards that this was happening. So when they saw a helicopter coming over, they didn't know what to make of it. They actually started firing at it. So that really could have been a disaster right there. But thankfully, it was all straightened out. Like I said, um, you know, a lot of like iconic uh, people, you know, musicians and actors were in this film. Uh I remember this for me being one of the first times that I saw John Candy on screen. And again, he has a very, very small part in the film, but it's it's a pretty noticeable or a pretty notable part, I should say, uh, where he kind of plays the parole officer for Jake, and of course, Jake right away violates his parole. So John Candy is hot on the trace. Um, there's other, you know, small cameos and things. of fame supermodel from the 60s, Twiggy, makes an appearance where uh, Elwood actually meets her at a gas station and sets a date with her later that night. He of course doesn't make it because he's got to go pay those taxes. The, the, the music in this film was absolutely amazing. And I think what was great about it is the fact that one of the one of the things one of the things, excuse me, that the studio was a little reluctant to to do with this film was was the fact that you had, you know, like a Ray Charles and a James Brown and Aretha Franklin, who are, I mean, legendary musicians, but their worry was like, well, oh, it's just not really contemporary. They were actually going to replace Aretha Franklin with the disco group, and I don't know their name, but basically the ones that sang the song Car Wash. They wanted to do that, but John Landis fought for it. He's like, no, that that is totally against the vibe of this film. Nothing against those guys, but that's not what we're trying to do here. Thank God that scene in the diner uh, stayed in with Aretha Franklin singing Think, which was probably one of the highlights of the film, probably next to Jake and Elwood singing with Ray Charles and Ray's music shop. Again, the music in this film is legendary. Like I said, I have the soundtrack. It is it is an amazing soundtrack. It's probably one of the best uh, soundtracks out there for a film. Guys, thanks for listening. Do me a favor. Head on over to Instagram. Stuff You Don't Need to Know is there. I post pictures about the content that I talk about. This is Jay, and I'll talk to you guys later. <laughs> Yeah!